Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello, and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. This is Lucinda Carney. I'm your host, and this week's topic is all about onboarding. Everything you needed to know, and maybe some stuff you didn't think you needed to know. So onboarding, is it the missing link? The reason we thought this was a relevant topic to discuss was all down to a LinkedIn discussion that came up about three weeks ago. I had had a conversation with a colleague about HR terminology and we sort of said, oh, well, onboarding, is this just the new word for induction? And I wondered whether it was or whether it wasn't and posted that question out on LinkedIn And it was amazing. I think there were 9,000 views of the post, 45 odd comments. It was fascinating. And there were lots of themes coming through. There was some really great stuff. And actually, I will post the link to that thread for anyone who is interested to read down them to to discuss that, because I thought it was a good, there was some excellent content. Thank you to everybody who contributed it. I don't want to read out individual names because there were too many good ones and that would just make it a podcast about reading out people's names from LinkedIn, which would be really dull, wouldn't it? So uh, this is where it stemmed from. There's clearly something to talk about here. And on top of that, not only is there something to talk about, about onboarding, it's a huge cost that as businesses we're overlooking. As you know, the HR uprising is about us aiming to rise up and add value in our organisation. And it strikes me that this would not be a bad place to start for many of us. So this is the topic for this week. Now, before I go into that, however, I wanted to say a huge and most sincere thank you to everybody who supported us last week. Many of you know that we officially launched last week, although by the time you hear this, it will be two weeks ago, we'd had some initial people listening and giving feedback, but we pushed out all of our content and launched on Apple iTunes last week to such an extent that I was able to uh, say thank you at the start of my interview with David James to everybody because we'd actually made it into the top 10 business podcasts on iTunes, which was so, so amazingly humbling and uh, really, really fantastic. And I, I appreciate so much all of the comments that we had from people and support. Saying that, I said that last week and this week I need to say an even bigger thank you because not only did you put us into number seven on the business podcast last week, we then went to, up to number one and held that number one spot all over the weekend. It was amazing to just feel like that. I've never had a number one pop because, uh, and uh, so, no, sorry about that, but it was just really great because it's great validation that maybe what we're doing is of value and of interest to people. And it's encouraging because that just means that we're going to try even harder to carry on giving you quality content. Not only did we reach number one and stay there, we also were mentioned as new and noteworthy uh, in the Apple 
uh, podcast as well. So that's pretty impressive when you think you're up there with Love Island. So, you know, there you go. I've clearly made it. Anyway, I, I jest. But the other reason I wanted to talk about the topic of onboarding was because one of the things that uh, came through in the conversations and some of the feedback from our initial podcasts was that many people who'd listened to it were, you know, people who just knew me. And they said that a lot of the content was more broadly relevant than just to HR. So I figured that having done a little bit of homework onboarding, this is definitely a topic that is relevant to both HR and managers. So it was a really good one to look at this week. So the structure of this podcast, the idea here is I thought I'd just chat briefly through why is onboarding even a thing? Why is it something we need to consider? What is it? What was the social media consensus of it? And some thoughts that we had by going out and talking to people. And we came up with five different types of onboarding. And let's say three different types of or people uh, that require onboarding. So it became a really broad topic. And let's see whether this is your experience. So first of all, why is onboarding important? Well, largely, you know, we want to add business value because of the cost of losing people. It's so scary. I looked at the figures and um, there's a range of figures out there, but the two that stood out, one was uh, SHRM, Society for Human Resource Management, and the other was Harvard Business Review, but there was plenty of other similar information, including a a meta-analysis And the figures that you were seeing was that something like or up to a third of people were actually choosing to leave a business within their first six months. I mean, how scary is that? Particularly when you consider that figures I've seen were that the cost of bringing someone on board is equivalent of six to nine months worth of the previous incumbent's salary. So you bring someone on board and to get them up to speed, it's costing you, let's say you've got a 30 grand person, let's say it's costing you 20 grand to get them up to speed and then they leave. Well, you've then got to go over that all over again. So it really does, again, bring home this fact we spend loads of money on recruitment and then it stops in many cases, certainly in my experience, hopefully not in your organisation. And that's what I think onboarding needs to be because we need to consider you know, why are we operating a process or we're part of a process as custodians of the people stuff? We're operating a a process that's broken and there are gaps in it throughout the talent journey, let's say, where money is hemorrhaged. And going back to the point of the HR uprising is we want to bring value, we want to support each other and businesses in bringing value. I think some of these ideas, or I hope some of these ideas that came out I'm going to share in this podcast might help be helpful to you in your organisations. So why do we want to do it? Because we want to avoid the hemorrhaging of talent and cash uh, and and add more value to the business. But what sort of period of time are we talking about when we're saying onboarding? I mean, my question was, oh, is it like the old days, you know, good old induction where you went and sat on a training course for three days or actually as a pharmaceutical sales rep, which, which is an early job I did, It was a six-week training course. Imagine the cost of that. And even then, I'm not sure if you arrive ready to go. Uh, There's still plenty of learning that you need to do on the job. 
So the consensus from what onboarding was, or maybe the duration of time that it related to, tended to be that it was the point in time from when an interested candidate has accepted your offer and it goes through to the point at which they are a performing and engaged member of your organisation. So I guess you could find that actually some people never make it. And that, let's say, is probably a six to nine month period. I say that they might be three months, yeah, I know, a month to three months in between leaving their old job and joining you. And then perhaps six months would be the onboarding phase. Certainly, that would seem like common sense because very often a probationary review period is six months, isn't it? So that might fit. So we know why it's important. We know what period of time we're talking about. And essentially, we're saying that it's not the same as induction. What, therefore, are we talking about when we're saying onboarding? Well, definitely, there are bits which are induction in my day, you know, in, in, in my view. And the terminology I'm probably using here, that's, this isn't induction. This is more operational onboarding. So I'm old enough to remember people actually joining a business and sometimes not even having a laptop ready when they turned up, maybe even not having a desk. Now, that was going back a bit, but even then, that was a big no-no. I mean, how to make someone feel wanted, not, if they don't even have the tools to do their job. So really, there's no excuse if we don't do that anymore. And clients that I've worked with, I've seen they've often got this sort of operational onboarding process set up as a tick list. And you know what? That's absolutely fine. As long as it happens in good time and you've got it down to a fine art. That's the minimum we should do, really, isn't it? So what else might we want to do? Well, of course, this is where I'd say this is more like induction. This is about the transferring of knowledge now, there were loads and loads of comments on the LinkedIn group about this and how you might do it. And it's quite broad. So some of it is about transferring knowledge in terms of the knowledge to do your job, the knowledge uh, that you need to do to, the, to access specific information that you need. And how can we give that to people in a way that is digestible? Because sitting on a training course, that might give you an insight into the company's culture. And it's pretty inspiring if you get senior managers or the CEO to come and talk to new recruits. But lots of it could be done in smaller chunks and probably more effectively. Not only that, how much do we really remember from an induction program? So how do we give people the knowledge to get the answers that they want when they want them? How can we make it more accessible to them? And this is where it might come into things like it's people too, because more and more the knowledge is in people's heads in organisations. So should we be thinking about inducting people by helping them to understand who has the answers and allowing them to get introductions to those people and, and have those relationships from day one so that they can go and help themselves and get those answers? I think that's quite an important way of thinking about it. The knowledge one is really nebulous how do we give people the knowledge that they need when they want it in digestible chunks so that they can be really, really effective uh, in terms of achieving what it is that they need to do and they can get up to speed faster? And that moves through to the next point, which I'm calling performance induction. Scarily, some of the same research showed that only 40% of 
organisations or businesses, this was about five years ago when they called it, actually set people short-term objectives and milestones, achievable ones. So I'm not talking about your full annual objectives. And actually, those are a little bit dated anyway, aren't they? We want short-term objectives, even for people who are fully established. Actually, this is about allowing people to know what the focus of their job role is and giving them some tangible achievements that they can do from day one. So they feel like they are getting stuck in. So if you've got someone joining a customer services team, it's not you just sit there, listen to calls and read through the user manual because I've grown about you that I would lose the will to live if I had to do that. It's about maybe you are going to go through the user manual, but why don't you update the screenshots or listening to the customer calls? Perhaps you can give the feedback to those customer calls. How can you get that person involved in doing practical things and Let's say my, I was updating the user manual. One of my deliverables might be to update the user manual uh, or provide uh, to, to refresh the feedback or to write a frequently asked question, update the frequently asked questions. Again, none of these are particularly smart because you shouldn't use the word update. But hopefully getting the idea of what I'm, I'm saying is, is can we come up with tangible small chunks of useful productivity for that person that they can do as part of their induction. So they're adding value and they're learning at the same time. Now that is an area where HR and managers ideally need to work hand in hand because my experience is that managers are pretty poor at setting objectives on the larger scale. So they may need a bit of help thinking about what would be a good small chunk induction objective undoubtedly this feels like an area for competitive advantage and value add because some of the same research said why people leave businesses and in that first six month period and one of the one of the months 23 percent in fact of that particular piece of research it was down to them not having clear guidelines about what was expected in those early days so we should be setting we should be using our performance management from day one setting people goals milestones and giving them feedback against it. And if you think about it, how on earth can we pass someone's probationary review if we haven't set them something tangible to achieve? Now, I know I've heard HR colleagues in the past saying, why on earth did they pass their probationary review and they're now telling me what they want to get rid of them? Well, probably because they didn't give them a structured induction, um, a set of objectives to achieve in the first place, so they didn't know what the person was capable of. And maybe had we done that, there wouldn't be a performance management problem later. So it sounds obvious, but it's clearly from the results, very few people are doing it. So it's definitely worth thinking about, are we setting short-term meaningful objectives? And this could be about people, that this could also be clever in terms of gathering knowledge. You could set people objectives to go and sit down with a key stakeholder and gather information on how this department is supporting them and feed it back to the team meeting. So they're getting a relationship with a stakeholder and they're bringing that information back to the team meeting. It's adding value and it's part of that real job. How can we make that job as real as soon as possible? So that was my performance. And then we move on to two new ones. And I think these ones potentially fit into that pre-boarding phase, which I'm saying is that point from which we give people a contract and then they, um, they before they actually join the business, it's great if we can do it 
uh, yeah, if we can do it as a pre-boarding, we might go on to the phase when they're actually in the organisation, but it may well take place uh, and be a great way of gluing someone into the organisation, getting them to feel part of it before they've even done day one. I mean, actually, could we even do some of the knowledge onboarding before they join day one? You know, can we provide some of the boring stuff for us to read through at home without putting them off? I do remember receiving, I think, about 30 policies when I first joined a particular company. I'm not sure I'd advocate that. So let's think about now about two other types of onboarding, which we're going to call social onboarding and talent onboarding. So what do we mean by social onboarding? And as we said, it's something that can happen in advance of people joining an organisation. Well, I think this is really about values and culture. And that was a theme that came through really strongly in the LinkedIn thread. And people were saying that people need to feel part of the values and culture of an organisation. How can you do that? And also, how can you make them feel welcome? Because going back to the reasons that people leave, other themes were not getting enough support from the managers, not feeling part of things from day one. And, you know, We've all properly joined somewhere where you felt that there's a bit of a clique uh, and how do you actually feel part of it? So on to social and talent onboarding. What do we really mean by social onboarding? And this is an interesting one because it can absolutely fit with when we are pre-boarding, which is a term, of course, uh, in terms of how we help people feel part of the values and culture of an organisation how we make sure they don't feel they're on the outside of a clique. And this could even happen. Some collaboration technologies are out there where you could, in principle, help someone feel part of that team before they even join. Now, of course, that's not going to work for everybody because I kind of feel the world is divided into a third of people who join in on social media, a third of people who lurk, and a third who have nothing to do with it. So that still means that two thirds of people in terms of social onboarding, technology is not going to be the only answer. Now, I had a conversation with a gentleman called Adrian and he's from Easy Web Group. So I'll give them a shout out because what they were doing was particularly good, I felt. They are growing strongly and they're bringing new people in all the time and they have started inviting people in fact, I hope I'm not giving away their secrets and they'll have to carry on doing this. Uh, but basically, they would uh, ask people before they joined just a few really simple questions. So it might be, what's your favourite colour? What's your favourite food? Do you support any football teams, etc.? That kind of stuff. But questions, getting to know them as a person. And they'd get that data back from these people. And they would also have the information on people in their immediate team that they would be able to share with them. But then on their first day... Let's say my favourite colour is purple and uh, my favourite food is chocolate or a specific chocolate and I support a specific football team. They had a purple balloon on that person's desk. They had their favourite chocolate and the person next to them said, you know, how did Portsmouth get on at the weekend? So I just thought that was a really lovely way of helping people feel part of something and having that personal touch. Now, I realise that managers are busy. We are all really busy how could you do that in your organisation? I wonder, is there someone who could take responsibility? Not necessarily HR, I feel this probably does sit with the line manager, but is there someone who could take responsibility for that personal touch? Worth thinking about, isn't it? Because certainly 
if you give people those clear goals and objectives from day one, they've got all the systems they need, they're given the knowledge they need, plus they're made to feel part of a team. Well, wouldn't you want to stay in that business? You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? So that's four areas of it. And then the fifth one, which I think was a relatively new one, I'm not sure that it's happening yet, came about through a conversation with a recruitment specialist and they were explaining how much fabulous information they have about people in order to determine that they're the right person for the job. So, of course, they look at their CV and you know what qualifications people have got, you know what industries they've worked in, you know if they can speak any languages, all of that fabulous stuff on the CV. What happens when they join the organisation? Pretty much nothing. So it just sits in the recruitment software or on a piece of paper, doesn't it? Now, one of our key aspects in many ways is we want to help talent move around the business. We want to keep talent in the business. And if we know what people's skills, knowledge and experiences from day one, by potentially sucking that information in, I guess the person could complete an online CV, but if you could pull it through from the recruitment tech, even better, into your talent search system, well, wouldn't that be powerful? So that I've only been here a week, but someone can see that the skills that I have may be able to help them. Maybe I've got project management qualification or I've got experience in a specific sector um, and I can speak a certain language. If people know that from day one, then again, the individual can, they can get out there and they can actually perform from day one. Got to be worth thinking about, don't you think? Be a different way of doing things and would be really great to have that functionality and that information to your fingertips. So those were five different types of onboarding, if you like, or ways in which people require onboarding. This question I asked at the Festival of Work because I presented on this last week and on average, people were doing two out of the five. I wonder whether you're doing more than that. Are you doing all five? Well done. Love to hear from you if you are. Or are you doing a different combination? Is there something else that works in your organisation about onboarding that you'd like to share? We would absolutely love to hear from you because this is all about collaboration, sharing best practice and sharing ideas that can help us deliver better value. So I also said that there were three audiences that perhaps we need to think about with onboarding. And you might think, well, why three? Uh, Ultimately, it's just people who are new starters. And again, I must admit that that was my perception until I sat down and chatted with Mervyn Dinan. And he pointed out to me that there are two other areas. One is something called cross-boarding. And what he's talking about there is about people moving from one area of a business to another. Well, have you ever thought about things like that? I certainly hadn't. I realised that that makes total sense. In different sectors or business units, very often the whole culture is entirely different. So you can imagine that someone moving, even almost moving under a different manager, a management style, could make a big difference to how they feel and how quickly they become effective. Again, this is where buddying, I think, is a really useful tool. And then finally, the other area, which I was a bit of a cheat maybe, is about new manager onboarding. But I say it's cheap, but actually, isn't it really important? All too often, people who are promoted, let's say your your best engineer, 
is promoted to be the line manager. And on Monday, they rock up and they're going to be the line manager. Well, it is an entirely different job, people management, from being an engineer. Yet we might expect them to be an engineer on Friday and to rock up and be an excellent people manager on Monday. Often we promise them development, but does that happen? Often it's not even till years later that that actually takes place. So how can we ensure that these people know what they need to do in order to deliver a great experience? Now, there's many things that a manager needs to learn in terms of their onboarding, and maybe it's about development, but it is about knowledge, skills, dealing with difficult situations. However, if we just go full circle and think this manager may never have had a good onboarding experience themselves, they've probably not seen it role modelled because generally we tend to do the absolute bare minimum. So their manager might not have done it. They've never seen any processes that that, um, have demonstrated it doing well. We know that in the UK specifically, we're particularly poor at management development and our management skills are not as good as they should be. Well, isn't that a risk waiting to happen when we go right back full circle to why we need to do this? Because we need to give those managers the skills to onboard others effectively if we're not going to waste money on recruitment. So where I see that we can add huge value in an HR or a learning development role is by helping the line manager to realise how important onboarding is as a process and working to support them in delivering value and doing a good job with it. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be them. Maybe they can delegate this to someone in their team, particularly something like the social onboarding. But it just needs to happen, doesn't it? And maybe the reason it doesn't is, A, we've never thought of it, or B, we're so busy with our head down doing tasks. And that applies to both the people manager and someone in an HR L&D role. We're all hugely busy. And perhaps we don't have the opportunity to step back and think, about obvious though it is, spending the time doing something as something like this could actually be a way of adding tremendous value to our organisation and it could be really tangible. So the questions I'd ask you is, what types of onboarding are you doing in your organisation? Is it a consistent onboarding experience for people? What could you do differently How many people, what are the percentages in your organisation of people who leave within six months? And if there was something that you wanted to do from what we've discussed here or different ideas around onboarding, how could you measure that impact? Wouldn't it be amazing if you could make a tangible difference to the the length of time that people stay with the business? Because that would be demonstrable value add. Get those figures out and think, what is that you need to do? Maybe it's something you can use to make a business case for tech or training or support in this area. Food for thought. So I really hope you found this of interest. Certainly, it's a much bigger topic than I would have thought it was. In summary, we've covered why do onboarding? What are we defining as onboarding? The duration of time. We've covered five different types of onboarding. So operational, knowledge, performance, social and talent. And we've discussed the fact that onboarding is for more than people who are just new to your business. It's also relevant for people who are moving within the business or upwards in the business. Hopefully you found that of interest. 
If you did, perhaps you could share the podcast with colleagues, uh, friends, other people who you might find it uh, relevant and helpful. As ever, would love to hear from you. Please feel free to make contact on any of our social media channels. You can see all of them on www.hruprising.com, which is a really easy way to get all the links. We try to put relevant links in the show notes so it's easy for you to get. And we also transcribe the show notes. So if there was something that you felt you'd like to refer back to and you didn't quite catch it, then there are transcriptions on those web pages as well. All that remains to say is thank you very much. I've been your host, Lucinda Carney. I appreciate your time having a listen to our podcast and I hope you'll tune in again next week. And if you haven't already subscribed, subscribe and it will already deliver. It will automatically deliver to your phone. Thanks so much for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.